I am a native to South Central Los Angeles. The funny thing is my dad was an entrepreneur. Two years and nine months later, um, when I left, they were at 70 people and I had hired a good amount of those folks. How do you create win-win situations for economic mobility? Can we do it through technology? One of the things I've leaned into a lot as being a founder is really listening to my gut. I approached her and was like, you want to do this thing with me? You can build a really cool product. You can make a lot of money and you can also like treat your workers equitably. Oh, I want to find the best people for these positions. And it just all just so happens to be black women. And that that has been the most life-giving experience I've literally ever had. What's up on Foundation? Dan Kihanya here, your host for Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for listening in. That was Camille Terry, co-founder and CEO of Charger Help, a company that enables on-demand repair of electric vehicle charging stations. Our episode is sponsored by Black VC, a focused community built for and by Black investors. Check out the link in the show notes for more about their exceptional programs and events. If you ever thought about getting into venture, you definitely want to connect up with them at blackvc.com. That's B-L-C-K-V-C.com. Well, it's July 2020, and back in March, we thought we'd have the coronavirus wrestled and contained by now, and we would be on our way up the long road to societal and economic recovery. Well, it appears we just aren't there yet. Here in the U.S., more than ever, we need to embrace the challenge that we are all in this together as a country. Please. Wear a mask when you can, not because someone told you to or because it was mandated, but simply as a gesture of support, empathy, and consideration for our neighbors and fellow citizens. As always, you can find Founders Unfound anywhere you regularly listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Feel free to drop us a review on Apple or Podchaser.com. And please, follow, like, and share to help us grow. Now, on with the episode. Stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode number 15 in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Camille Terry, a co-founder and CEO of Charger Help, a company that enables on-demand repair of electric vehicle charging stations. Welcome to the show, Camille, and thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's first start off. I mean, this is just an incredibly powerful, crazy time. How, how are you doing? How's your family? I mean, obviously in the context of COVID and then what's been going on in the last three weeks, how, how are you? I, I was actually having this conversation with a friend the other day. I've, I feel like almost numb to it because... Um, yeah, it's like a lot happening and then things are going really well with the business. And so it's like weird. Like some days you're like super numb. Some days you're sad. Some days you're excited. It's like it's definitely a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I know for me, it's even in the same day, you can be up, you can be down. Right. And <laughs> yeah. And if you're trying to do a startup on top of that, it must be just all the more compounded and intense. No, no, it really is. Yeah. You're in LA, is that right? Yeah, specifically South Central Los Angeles. It's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. South Central representing. You have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, first of all, let's start off. Why don't you help the audience understand what, what exactly is Charger Help? How does it work? And what do you, what is it that the company does? Sure. So I guess like over the last five years, there's been probably like 
almost half a million charging stations installed throughout the U.S. And over the next five years, they're looking at installing about two million more. But one of the things that has come about is like the folks that install the charging stations and manage the software in the charging stations, they're called network providers. And one of the issues that have come is having someone go on site to troubleshoot a software issue. In the past, we would send electrical contractors out on site, but when they would get there, it wasn't an electrical issue. It had more to do with firmware, communication, modem, and so they couldn't fix it, and they were expensive. And so what Charger Help does is that we partner with network providers, so when a station is experiencing an issue, we receive a dispatch immediately, and then we're training folks from the local community on how to troubleshoot software issues for smart devices And in this case, electric vehicle charging stations. And then from there, we're able to get folks paid pretty equitably and then also save money to network providers. And I think the biggest point to all of this is when we were using electrical contractors as an industry, it could take up to like 30 days to have a station get fixed. Whereas with our technology that we're building out, we're able to get stations fixed within like the hour, which we're really excited about. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little bit of a difference transformative so we'll dig into that in a little bit but let's let's first let's hear a little bit more about you where you're from where did you grow up yeah so i'm from south central la i actually moved to philly when i was like 22 23 so i feel like i grew up in philly like a lot of like my adult developmental years was in philadelphia i am a native to south central los angeles nice nice and so growing up did you have a sense of what entrepreneurship was? I know for me, I had I had a dad who was, you know, spent 40 years at the same company, but he, he, you know, he was one of these frustrated entrepreneurs who had an idea every, every other day and never really acted on them. But I'm always curious to ask entrepreneurs, did you have that in your life, anybody in your family or any experiences around what that meant? Yeah. The funny thing is my dad was an entrepreneur. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Both of my parents are from Belize and my dad started his company when he was 22. He started a um, computer networking company. He liked to take things apart. So he started up as, as a mechanic, but he said he didn't like to get dirty. So then he learned computers. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way he thinks. Um, but the, the, the funny thing about all of that is like, I always said I never wanted to be an entrepreneur because like, as like a lot of entrepreneurs probably know, like when times are like, well, they're great. But when they're bad, like they're horrible. So I just remember like, you know, struggling a lot because my dad was like trying to run this company. And I always said, I'm just going to work for a big Fortune 500 company and <laughs> be able to like get a 401k and like have something safe. And here I am. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens a lot. You, you know, you got to see sort of the underbelly of entrepreneurship, really, which is it's risky, it is uncertainty. There's ups and downs. Like you said, when the times are good, they're usually pretty good. But when they're bad, they can be stressful and, and angst ridden. So I guess you got, at least you have, you, you kind of entered it eyes wide open somewhat. And so you, so you grew up thinking that you're going to take the corporate route. Did that influence or did you, when you were thinking about going to college, were you thinking along those lines or? Yeah. And so much so that when I came out of college, I just started off at a nonprofit. So I was in Camden, New Jersey. And then I transitioned into banking. And so when I started off in banking, I started like as a part-time teller. And then I think within four years, I was running a group of business bankers. So climbing the ladder, like checking off boxes and 
you know, just attacking goals was always something I was really good at. So that's why I felt like corporate was really good for me. But there were some, yeah, I think that it does stifle creativity and like all of these other things that, I, that I'm now being able to like get being an entrepreneur. But in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> like I can get goals. <laughs> Tell me what to do. That's funny. And how did you view the cultural shift from going from West Coast to East Coast? Because I kind of did the opposite. I started on the East Coast and ended up on the West Coast. How was that transition? I loved it. I think one of the greatest things about Philadelphia is that there are like so many Black people. And like, even though I grew up in like South Central, my parents sent me to like to the school, um, to the school in the Valley uh, for high school. And so I was always around like a lot of different races, but never around a lot of black folks. And I remember getting to Philly and traveling to DC and my cousin, he works like on top of, you know, everybody works at the hill or, or on top of the hill. And, you know, everybody's like a Greek and it was wild to see black wealth concentrated in such a way and just how folks worked with one another. So like the East coast will forever have my heart. And I'm hoping, you know, as like Lamert Park and other areas here in L.A. continue to grow, we can have something like that. But in the during that time period, it was it was it was amazing to to be to see that. Yeah, that's interesting. How, how did that how did you feel about that? Was it one of those things where you're like, oh, I'm not familiar with this. So it's hard to sort of I can appreciate it, but it's hard to get into it. Or you were like, I'm, I'm in I'm in 100 percent. I want to be a part of this. How did that sort of strike you when you first sort of came across that realization? I think I definitely was like, I'm in. There were definitely like some circles where folks who came from, you know, there's black people who come from a lot of money and they have a different perspective. Or if you tell somebody you're from South Central, even if they're black, sometimes they're like, say crazy stuff, you know? So there was groups that I was like, oh, okay, probably not. But then like, generally, I was like, oh, this is really cool. I want to be a part of this thing. And how can I replicate this like experience? Nice. All right. So so you went to college and what, what, what was your major in college? What were you focused on? Organizational leadership. Nice. And so you, you go the nonprofit route initially, and then you end up in this bank, screaming up the ladder. Was there a moment or a set of epiphanies, I guess would be the word, where you started to say, climbing the ladder is not going to be enough for me, where you started to think about maybe I want to do something more entrepreneurial or creative, or was it more, I want to do this other thing. And it seems like the way to do that other thing is through creative entrepreneurship. I think there, well, not I think, there were a series of, of moments. So one of my passions has always been like economic mobility and how do you create win-win situations? And mainly because I watched my parents like work a lot, even my dad who had his own company and my mom was a special education assistant. So I saw them come to America for this American dream, but it, it didn't matter how hard they worked or how many hours, you know, they put in. Like there were still barriers, right? And that always was confusing to me. And so one of the first things I did was went the nonprofit route to say, okay, well, how do I enact change through working at a nonprofit? I found out that there's also a lot of barriers working at a nonprofit, especially when you have to like ask people for money all the time and they're really controlling how you choose to address an issue. So I was like, well, I guess I'll go where the money is at. So I was like, I'll go be a banker. Right. So then I you know, transitioned to being a banker. And, but then even there, you know, I was a part of the Warden Small Business Development Center. So we were working with small businesses in the community. I sat on the board of a community development financial institution. So I was still trying to find ways to do this economic mobility thing to like help people 
but it still wasn't enough. And then on top of that, my mom got re-diagnosed with cancer. My mom's had cancer my entire life, really because of like poor healthcare system and like everything that comes with living in poverty. So she got re-diagnosed. And so I had to come back to LA and two things happened at that point. The first thing was that I had climbed so far up and I was really young. So I'm like, I think I was like 25 or so managing 14 people that are almost three times my age. And I think I was burnt out. And so when I came back to LA, I was just like, I don't want to do much of anything. I just want to help my mom and just figure out something. So and figure out something that has to do with my passion. So I guess like all of that led down to like, I went the nonprofit route, I went this banking route, but I'm still not figuring out how can I like drive impact. And I took a break and started just working random jobs. Um, and I ended up at a clean tech company. And that was my last company I was at before I started my own company. Wow, that's pretty profound. And I think there's a story there around sort of this, this forcing action that happens with your mom and and you having to go and break away. And what I mean, it, it must be interesting. I know I remember vaguely since I'm an old man now, but what it was like to have people who are older than you kind of reporting to you and and the dynamic of, you know, accepting their wisdom, but also being the boss. And right. so that is hard. <laughs> I can see how that would be something where it can you know lead to, like you said, to burnout. What when you said you did some odd jobs, what were the odd jobs? So I, so I, so I, you know, my background is in organizational leadership. I'm obsessed with data and process. It's really funny. I enjoy writing RFPs and studying stuff, like all the things that people usually hate doing, I enjoy doing. So I started picking up projects around helping, basically helping organizations see if they're actually impactful. So the first one we did was actually with the LAPD, their community safety, their CSP program. So we were looking at, based off of all of their goals that they had for this program of doing community policing, were they actually hitting, you know, the Mm. mark? Because they were actually going out for funding. So they had to prove all of this stuff. And so I took a look at the report that they made and made some suggestions on how they should move forward. So I did that. And that was a project I was working on. And then my other project, I was working with Dress for Success and the the Workforce Development Center's in LA and San Bernardino County to see if their workforce development programs were actually impactful. And there again, just like found just people kind of like missing the mark or just not doing exactly what they were saying they were doing, but they were able to fix numbers to make it seem like they were doing it. But when we started asking better questions, we saw like, oh yeah, like this isn't impactful. (laughs) So those are, yeah, those are kind of like the two, two things I worked on. Yeah, those sound really interesting. And I imagine for a conversation for another time is your perspective on community (laughs) policing and what we have going on now. But so you end up with, is it called EV Connect? Yeah. So tell us how that came about. So I finished those projects and I was like, oh, like I need healthcare and (laughs) like a job. So I went on um, AngelList. Small details. I was like, oh, I should probably do something. I'm just like hanging out with my mom all the time, taking her doctor's appointments. Like she's also getting tired of me being at home. So I was like, I should do something outside the house. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to angelist.co and I literally was looking for like customer support jobs. I was like, I don't want to manage people. I don't want to have to like tell people what to do. I just want to like be in like a little closet and just type like whatever people need me to type. And so I ended up at EV Connect. There probably was like 10, no more than 15 people at that time. 
I remember my mom showing up in the office and not believing it was a real company because there was like no one there. <laughs> She's like, no, really, mom? Really, mom? No, really? She's like, what? And my parents, even though my dad owned his own company, like this whole startup tech stuff is just, they're always like, explain that again. So my mom, she didn't believe it. But what ended up happening at EV Connect, we grew like so quickly. We landed some pretty big projects. You know, I was able to stand up our customer support department, then the customer experience, and then expand our call center, stand up the network operations center. And then my last role was managing, was director of programs. So every major deployment in the U.S. and internationally um, was sourced and implemented by my team. Also did our ERP system. And this was like, I always laughed at my founder at the time, just being like, I just came here to like answer tickets. Like, Like two years and nine months later, um, when I left, they were at 70 people and I had hired a a good amount of those folks on the customer experience support side and helped do some like really cool things there and just learned a lot from that team. And yeah, they'll always have like a special place in my heart for, for, you know, taking a chance on me. So I'd never done any of those things before. And my, the founder was like, well, you know, show me your plan. And I would. And he's like, okay, I guess you can do that. And then I did it. And I did it again. And he was like, okay. So that was a pretty amazing experience. Yeah, that I mean, that speaks to the the experience that a lot of a lot of people can have at a startup, which is there isn't this direct path, and and it's sort of like if you if you double and triple down and invest yourself into it, then that's a signal to the people who are you know in charge, which we'll talk about now that you're in that seat, who realize you know today we're fine, and then tomorrow we needed this thing two weeks ago. Right, (laughs) right. like, I I need somebody to do that. Well, Camille, what do you think about this? And, you know, if the answer is halfway decent, it's like, why don't you go look into that? And so that that is, I mean, that's one of the, I think, beauties of of working in a startup is that you get this opportunity to kind of dig in and get more and more exposure in a very accelerated way. Like you said, it was just a couple of years. And um, I know the company, I, I remember researching it, it's raised a bunch of, of, of money and it's a pretty profound leader in the industry and so forth. So you were there kind of to see that. Yeah. So was there, was there anything that you took away? We're going to talk about uh, on the other side of the break, your, your startup, where there are things that you took away from that experience that you cataloged in the back of your mind, like, hmm, if I ever do this myself, this is the way I think I'm going to do it, or this is the way I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing I took away is like really like listening and paying attention. And then mainly like from our our founder, um, Jordan at EV Connect, like he made sure that every day he left office to have lunch and anybody in that entire company, if they ever wanted to go (laughs) have lunch with him, like he would. And he took a lot of just like listening to people and he was very genuine. And I think that's one thing that I'm like really trying to have at my company is just be like, no matter how large we, we get, you know, somebody from the customer support side wants to go have lunch with me. I can like not only have lunch with them, but like want to have lunch with them and like listen to them. And even until we when we left like 70 people, I remember there was a cus- one of the customer su- support ladies and she was like, yeah, Jordan, we went out to lunch. And I was like, yeah, I told you. And people are always taken aback by it. But I think having a leader like that is so important, especially with times like now. And so, yeah, that's something that I, I want to continue to like implement as I, you know, as we continue to grow. 
That's a great point. Listening is is a underrated, underappreciated, underused, uh, and the good leaders really do a lot of listening for sure. Yeah. So we will take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Camille Terry of Charger Help. Hi, this is Jean-Claude from Black VC. We're a community created to connect, engage, empower, and advance Black venture investors. And the best part is we're built for and by Black venture investors. In these unprecedented times, our mission has become clearer than ever. Black founders and investors are underrepresented and undercapitalized in the startup ecosystem. If you're an investor, an entrepreneur, or aspiring to be either one, Black VC is working hard to help you find the community and the resources that you need to further your journey. To learn more about the events and the programs that we run, follow us on Twitter at BlackVC, that's B-L-C-K-V-C, or visit us on our website at BlackVC.com, that's B-L-C-K-V-C.com. Yep, you heard that correctly, no A. At BlackVC, we believe that we are the change that we see, and together, we're stronger. We hope that you'll join us. So we're back with Camille Terry from Charger Help. So Camille, now maybe take us through where did Charger Help come from? You're at this startup in the space. You've learned a lot, obviously, about the industry and about sort of the needs. How did the idea come about for Charger Help? Well, I think the funny thing is most of my decisions has been based off around my mom's health. And so I came into LA when her, you know, her health got a little crazy and then it had subsided. That's why I went back to work. And then when I had to make the decision to leave EV Connect, it was once again because uh, my mom's cancer came back even worse. And it was a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm the eldest of the family. So I take care of her as be a primary caregiver. And so because I knew I had to leave, I really started to think about, you know, what, what else could I be doing? Right. Because I, I really enjoyed the clean tech space and I really enjoyed where clean tech was going. I think they're one of the only industries that I've seen so far that talks about equity a lot. And that's been like really cool to be a part of. And so when I started to think about like what were the holes within our industry, uh, one of the things that popped up to me was, was the maintenance piece, was the ideal that there really isn't a workforce that can maintenance smart technology, whether that's your ring doorbell, whether that's, you know, the charging station, all these things that we're making smart, like you either have someone that's IT or you have someone that is just like, you know, they can go out and like fix the physical thing. Right. Yeah. They, they have uh, soldering irons and wrenches and. Right. <laughs> those, yeah. But yeah. it's like, and then even if you have that, if you, if you put the IT person out in the field, you're going to overpay for that service because sometimes the problems aren't that complicated. Right. And so. Yeah. And so that's when I, you know, started working with, with Lacey and talking to the LA Clean Tech Incubator and just saying like, hey, like, you know, can I like run a program here with folks from the community to teach them how to maintenance these charging stations? Because number one, I know I can save the industry money because we don't have to pay a crazy amount for an IT person to go out or an electrical contractor person to go out, especially because that isn't what we're trying to fix, Right. And I knew that we could pay more than some of these folks in the community were getting paid at like entry level customer support jobs. So in my mind, it was like this really happy medium. And so Lacey being the amazing organization that they are, um, allowed me to run a pilot. So I created a curriculum on how to fix charging stations and it included environmental justice and everything about the EV industry. It's six modules and I launched it with 30 participants. and. 
really had the industry show up for me. Like we had folks from all different companies come in and speak to them. We had some manufacturers that allowed us to go on site to show them around. And these are like just folks from like South Central LA, from like Pacoima, like just folks that are like, oh yeah, I heard about this EV thing, but I didn't really know too much about it. And the way that they soaked up the information and was able to solve these problems like quickly was was very validating. And But one of the things that we found was that it was still hard for them to get a job, right? Like to be an independent contractor. Like it was still hard for them to do their invoicing and all this stuff that comes with being an independent contractor. And so from there, we're like, okay, if we create an app, we secure the contracts with network providers and then we facilitate how they're getting paid and, you know, making sure that they have the right information to troubleshoot and that we're making sure that the network providers knows when they're on site. If we facilitate all these things that were hard for both parties in a phone, we felt as though like, oh, that is a solve. Like that is a win-win um, situation. And that's basically how we came up with the idea. That makes a lot of sense. And, it, you know, the thing that I love about what you're doing is this sort of dual mission. When people hear about it in the name, obviously, it's about, oh, this is clean tech. This is electric vehicles. But you really are talking about kind of the evolution or the future of work in this idea of, you know, we had somebody else on who was in the water space, right? And so turning turning and they use sensors and AI to monitor water levels in other countries. That's more of an issue. So it's basically turning your local plumber into a technician. And so I, I see a lot of parallels here where you're taking the abilities that people have and sort of the the work rhythm of I go to a site, I need to diagnose, I need to fix and kind of bring it into the 21st century. It's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. And I think the one thing I would say there that we're most proud is like with technology, like you don't have to go to school for four years to maintenance a charging station. You know what I mean? It's like we're we're doing all these troubleshooting things, like using the technology to predict, okay, this is this issue, do these things, instead of it just being like a troubleshooting document. Like and so I I'm like so excited as technology kind of like being like leveling the playing field in some aspects and like really looking at, okay, is this person a hard worker? Are they going to show up on time? Are they going to, you know, be kind? Like the things that I know that people from my community are like really great at and highlighting that and allowing them to, you know, be more successful and, and right full circle, right? Like this is economic mobility. Like that is what I'm testing out is like, how do you create win-win situations for economic mobility? Can we do it through technology? And that's, these are the assumptions that we're testing with this company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I really love that term, actually, uh, economic mobility. So you have an interesting business where you have sort of this chicken and egg, right? So you have to build up one side, I guess, the supply side, so to speak, of, of the of the folks that are going to do the work. And then you have the demand side, which obviously is the is the networks and the, I guess you call them hosts of uh, charging stations or owners of charging stations. So how did you think about that when you're starting the business? Did you think about I need to do them at the same time or I need to validate one first or how, how did you think about that? Yeah, we think of doing them at the same time because just as like our network providers are very important because they're our customers, we also see the technicians as our customers. And even when we build models, we look at how many stations in a contract do we need in order to make sure that a technician is making at least $40,000, right? And how do we 
align them you know like what areas can we do that in like is it a full-time job or are we working with a partner like AAA where we're subsidizing work so we really saw it as we have to do them both because they're both equally as important and we really see ourselves as a bridge because like these two groups need each other like network providers need folks that are gonna be able to be on the ground that knows what they're doing that's affordable and technicians these folks that we're training these new technicians need need work that's actually going to allow them to you know if they, they don't want to be a maintenance tech, maybe they want to sell EV charging, maybe they want to get into solar, but they still need this experience in order to go through that pathway, right? And because they need each other, we're just facilitating that relationship. That makes a lot of sense. And so, so basically, the need was glaring, which is another great sign of opportunity for a startup that it's got to happen one way or another, and it happens really inefficiently and expensively and there's a big disconnect with basically the skill sets. So, so it's a cool thing. So, as you were thinking about starting the company or as you were starting the company, did you also have to think about sort of regionality and how are the people on the demand side? Are they more like municipalities and so it's like a physical constrained space or you're working with companies who have locations around the country or how does that work? So we're working directly with network providers. So when we think about network providers, those are the folks who are actually supplying the software for the stations. And so that way we don't have to go to a municipality. We will go to network provider because they've already secured all their site hosts because it's in their best interest for their stations to be online and operating at all times. And with new contracts that are coming out from a lot of the utility funding, they're requiring certain SLAs. I know New York has SLAs right now that stations can't be down longer than six hours. And we're starting to see it inside of more contracts where they're having line items for maintenance. So our customer is the network provider that is installing the stations all over. So the way we see our growth is alongside, we see ourselves as partners with network providers. So if they need us, you know, in New York, or if they need us in Florida, that's where we're going to be moving along with. This year, we're working on pilots and establishing out those relationships with some of the larger network providers and then also some mid-level network providers as well. So our growth plan and our strategy is in the making. We just started in January, so a lot of stuff we're still hammering out. But that's kind of like our overall idea of how we want to move forward with where we'll end up at geographically. Very interesting. One question, well, one clarification for those who don't know, an SLA is a service level agreement, and it's basically what you commit to when you have a service. It usually involves uptime or consistency and so forth. So that's what uh, Camille is talking about. So Camille, tell us, is there a big regulatory impact on your business specifically? I know clean tech obviously has a lot of regulatory aspects to it, but what about your business specifically? As of yet, we haven't seen any regulatory items come out that's impacting the maintenance side of, of EV charging. I think the only thing that we've been um, watching is this year there was supposed to be, I think it was almost like two or $3 billion of, of infrastructure funds that were coming out. But because of COVID, we're just more so paying attention to, you know, are those funds still going to be allocated this year? Are they being reallocated? Like, what does that look like? But yeah, that's about it. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, sometimes that's extra friction to growth and development when you're in the startup world. So can you give us a sense of sort of scale of like kind of where you are and where you're trying to get to? I mean, how many charging stations are there in the country and where are you on that journey? Because we only service public charging stations, so we're not doing residential, but we do do apartment buildings, so what we call multi-unit dwellings. So when we look at those numbers, they're probably a little, a little less than like 
I want to say half a million charging stations probably out there from private and public. And when we say private, sometimes like workplaces still have charging stations, but it's not mapped. Oh, okay. And and what I said earlier was that in the next five years, they're looking at adding about, I think it's like 2.5 million more charging stations. And so for us, we like we want it all. <laughs> We're being strategic in where we go just because we have to be mindful of like the workforce. And we are this year mainly testing like pilots. So we're looking at launching a pilot here in Southern California looking at how do we create models around really dense areas. And then we are going to be looking at launching a pilot maybe in New York or another state where we can look at how do we support stations that are a little bit more spread out. Because for the industry, it's a lot easier for network providers to support stations if they're all clustered together. But like really Los Angeles and New York and probably San Francisco are only areas that they are clustered together. And if we really want to do EV adoption, we have to look at you know, charging stations that are along the corridors of like the I-5. And how do you support a charging station that, you know, it is like in a very small town. Like, do you go and train one person there so they can go out and be dispatched, right? And we want to test those things this year um, as our first year. And the next year, we'll be able to go after um, some larger contracts. I guess the last thing I'll add there for us in regards to growth is that this year we are applying to like different RFPs going alongside some of our partner networks in order to win some some of the new infrastructure deals to expand into next year once they get installed. Great. A lot of momentum, which is awesome. So what's the big vision? Like, where do you see Charger Help going? I mean, you mentioned earlier this idea about IoT and some other things that are sort of that have intelligence now that there isn't really a precedent for how you service and maintain them. Do you see yourself going beyond clean tech or is that a big enough opportunity for you to spend all of your your focus on that for a while? Yeah, I think right now we're just really focused on supporting the EV industry. EV adoption is really important to me, environmental justice and um, really transitioning into a more green economy is really important. And so most of our, yeah, most of my thoughts and brain power is about how do I support this entire industry on the maintenance side? There may be other opportunities in the future, but one of the things that I've learned is just focus is key. And so we're just really focusing on solving this problem right now. Makes total sense. And it seems like it's a massive opportunity. And probably as you start to think about the globe and you can actually, you could spend your whole life and and the company's whole life just focused on EV. So that's great. We will take another short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Camille Terry from Charger Help. Hi, this is Jean-Claude from Black VC. We're a community created to connect, engage, empower, and advance Black venture investors. And the best part is, we're built for and by Black venture investors. In these unprecedented times, our mission has become clearer than ever. Black founders and investors are underrepresented and undercapitalized in the startup ecosystem. If you're an investor, an entrepreneur, or aspiring to be either one, Black VC is working hard to help you find the community and the resources that you need to further your journey. To learn more about the events and the programs that we run, follow us on Twitter at BlackVC, that's B-L-C-K-V-C, or visit us on our website at BlackVC.com, that's B-L-C-K-V-C.com. Yep, you heard that correctly, no A. At BlackVC, we believe that we are the change that we see, and together, we're stronger. We hope that you'll join us.
So we're back with Camille Terry from Charger Help. So Camille, let's shift gears a little bit. One of the things that we didn't talk about is uh, your co-founder. How did how did you come about connecting with your co-founder and deciding to take the plunge together in this? Yeah, so my co-founder, I actually met her through Lacey. And quick like, shout out to them. If you're not familiar with the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, it literally has been like the greatest thing uh, for our company just because of the people that are there and they're, yeah, it's been amazing. So my co-founder, she works for the Department of Labor and then she also does contracted work out for workforce development and workforce implementation. And so she worked alongside, Lacey hired her to work alongside of um, the team to do the first cohort. And one of the things I've leaned into a lot as being a founder is really listening to my gut. And so when I saw the way, the questions that Yvette asked and um, the way that she worked with the technicians and the participants, and also just like how quick she was able to pick up things, I, I approached her and was like, you want to do this thing with me? <laughs> and, and the funny thing is up until this point, there was a lot of people. So we had also like we had one startup grind LA and, you know, people were starting to like learn more about it. So there was a lot of folks who were approaching me about being a co-founder. So it was funny that when I asked the vet, she was like, she does. She's not familiar with tech, really. You know, she's a workforce development person, implementation person. So she was like, right. I don't know. And, and it was funny because everybody wanted to be my co-founder and the vet's like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, this is the one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think Groucho Marx has some weird, like, I don't want to join a club that would have me as a member. And it's kind right. of the opposite of like, I want the person I have to chase. I got to think about it. And she's like, I got to ask my husband. And she's like, I got to pray about it. And I said, okay, girl, <laughs> well, you could just let me know. And then she came back. I think almost like how a, long did it take? I think it took like a week. And I remember like seeing her every day and I didn't want to be like the weirdo that's like, you got a decision. You know, I also didn't want to seem like I was being thirsty. <laughs> so I was right, like, right, right. I'm just going to wait. And then finally she came back and she was like, okay, I think I could do that. And I was like, oh, okay, great. So a lot of the work that she has been doing is really helping with the products, right? Because one of the things that I know when you create technology, if you're not aware of everyone that needs to use your technology, especially where, you know, we, we may have folks that, you know, maybe they have a college degree, maybe they don't, maybe they're a veteran, maybe they're not, right? And because she's aware of workforce implementation and how people um, receive information, uh, we're, we really utilize her with our product team to ask the right questions, right? To, to make sure that we're not off the mark. and. Even when we talk about how we're going to pay people, like, what does that look like? And with the training, like, she's one of the trainers there that teaches a lot of the soft skills. And so she's been so integral to make sure that Charger Hope, you know, we are a technology company, but we're also saying that you can be both, right? You can build a really cool product, you can make a lot of money, and you can also, like, treat your workers equitably. And she's making sure that um, we are held accountable to that. So it's literally the best decision I've made. And um, I'm very happy she said yes. I would have been devastated if she said no. Because I'm really cool to work with, you know, so. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I'm glad she said yes. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's probably the best of all situations. Like you said, you if she had said yes right away, then maybe. Mm. Right. But then, it, but then it was six months later, you'd be like, I got to go. You know, so that's great. So tell me, have you raised any money for Charger Help? Or have you gone through an, a fundraise experience? Or how, how, how have you sort of funded it to so far? So it's funny when so we we basically launched, like launch, launch when 
COVID started happening. And one of the things that everyone kept telling me was like, VCs weren't giving money. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. So we went the route of like, we apply to like 20 or 30 pitch competitions, grants. And so like, so far we like most, like we raise a, a, I don't even know if it's a raise, but we've won a lot of money just from like pitching and from grants. And that's been able to like carry us forward. And then um, we've been teaching our curriculum. So we charge to teach the curriculum. So it's kind of like a bootstrap situation so far, but I think that we're definitely open to talking to um, investors. For me, I always say like, you know, like, all money isn't good money. And like, we want strategic investors. We want people that can help us scale. Like we do have a really good advisory team because we're a part of Lacey's incubator. But I guess the short answer is, yeah, the short answer is like, we bootstrap basically so far. We've been able to take on a pretty good amount of money to get us where we're at and kind of carry us through the year. But we will be interested in conversations probably soon in order for us to get what we need, you know, hit our milestones for 2021. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, a lot of times there's so many pitch competitions and, you know, challenges and so forth. And I think sometimes people view those, oh, that's just a distraction. It's not reality. But I mean, you're a great example. I mean, grants are great. And hey, on foundation out there, there's a little nugget, right? Grants don't dilute your equity. Right. <laughs> and so it's equivalent to revenue in some senses, right? Basically, it's cash that comes in that can fuel your cash flow and your cash needs, but you're not giving up any of your company for it. So it's, it's uh, especially when you're early on, it can be really great. Yeah. And we were lucky enough to win. MIT did a program with ServiceNow. Um, and ServiceNow is like a really big like workflow software company. And so we got, we won $100,000 through them and also like a lot of support services. And then we won LA Black Investors Club pitch competition. And then we came in as a runner up at Innovative City pitch competition where we pitched to Arlen Hamilton. And she was so intrigued with what we had to do. She offered us office hours. And so it's like we. What was that like? It was really cool. Like, I think because we care about what we're doing and like it makes sense to me and I know what I'm doing so well. It's like it's very exciting to like share, a, you know, share the industry with folks and share the opportunity with people. I mean, she was really cool. She did tell me she's like, you have a very interesting voice. Like you should do voiceovers. And I was like, OK, <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> Hey, hey, maybe maybe we'll get you as a, a guest host here on Founders Unfound. You do have Thank a good you. voice. She's like, you need to raise more money. Like, maybe do voiceovers. I was like, okay, Arlen, whatever you say. Like, yes. <laughs> but yeah, so I think, yeah, all uh, together, we're almost at rate, like just from pitches and grants, that we're almost at like 250. And so that covers like our MVP, that covers like literally everything. And we haven't had to give up any um, equity. Yeah. That's awesome. And so have there been other organizations or, or folks, you mentioned Arlen, you, you mentioned Lacey, other organizations that have been sort of helpful and helped to catalyze your momentum forward? Absolutely. Grid 110. So we were part of Grid 110 LA's Ideal to Prototype Program. So that's an organization uh, supported by the Los Angeles Mayor's Office. And like I said, we pitched at Startup Grind South LA, which was, I think this was a first time that they did South LA? That may be a lie. I'm not sure. That was really cool because that got, got us like really, really connected to folks. And then just like the industry in general, I've been so proud to be a part of the clean tech industry because of the ways in which we support one another. If I need to call and talk to anybody about an ideal, like literally everyone's open to like hearing the ideal and everyone's really excited about what we're building because 
like it's not the cool and sexy thing like maintenance isn't like fun you know what i mean like to people but like, oh, we'll do it yeah. uh, so it's like those organizations and just like my industry i'm like yeah i i think i've just been so taken aback by just the ways in which i can reach out to literally anyone and and they'll pick up my call and help me figure something out that's great i mean that's you want an industry like that right that is collaborative and supportive so here's a question. So as a Black woman founder, can you think of examples when you've been reminded of that fact in a positive way and on the other side, in a challenging way? Huh. Well, I guess like in the, starting off with a challenging way, I'm like, positive ways. <laughs> in a challenging way, I think that there's a lot of times where you may have an in- interaction and you don't know if like someone's treating you a type of way. Like a lot of it's just kind of like a mind, like it messes with your head, right? Because like you don't really know if like they're doing this because you're a black woman or maybe that's just how they are. And that's usually where I find myself a lot of times where like I want to believe the good in people. But then I'm just like, oh, like, are you treating me like this because of this? And then even right now with all of this, like focus on like black founders in general, I had a company reach out to us that like wanted to do to interview us. And, you know, the first thing I ask is like, well, why? Like, what did you hear? And they're like, oh, well, we want to do something on black founders. And like, have you tell us, like, how can we support black founders? I'm like, no. Like, we have a good company. Like, we have a good idea. You know what I mean? And so, like, I get why, like, people are starting to, like, focus on Black founders. But it also is, like, just as frustrating because, like, at the end of the day, like, I want you to judge me by, like, the ideal that I have. Like, I just want an equal opportunity. Like, I don't need an extra hand. Like, I just want you to treat me the same way as you treat everyone else. And so it's been interesting right now to have to kind of, like, manage that because, like, you do want to take advantage of, like, the times. But then... But then, but then it's just like, I just want you to know that I have a cool company and like, we're doing really cool stuff. And like, my team is really diverse and amazing. And that's what I want you to pay attention to. Yeah, you're right. I I feel that every day myself, this idea that first you're ignored because potentially because of it. And then now you're being paid attention to because of it, right? As opposed to what I'm doing and getting excited about my business. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Well, hopefully, when somebody asks you that question again, Founders Unfound will be on the positive (laughs) (laughs) category. I guess it's positive. You know, I will say one thing that is positive. So like my like, you know, if that's black, our future CFO is this black woman. And we spend a lot of time together. And I think the positive thing there has been being a community of them. And it's funny, when I went to build the company, I wasn't like, oh, I want to find like black women to be on my team. I was like, oh, I want to find the best people for these positions. And it just all just so happens to be black women. And like, that's been like really cool to like share in this journey and experience with just like our consultant, like she used to work for the Department of Defense. Like she did cost estimation for the Department of Defense for like the last like 10 years. And it is like a beast, you know, and we have calls until 11 o'clock at night, like working on stuff together. And I think there's a certain type of like sisterhood and just like respect because like we all have had like very senior level positions. So we've all been through like really just like crazy stuff, but we're here and now we're like collaborating to like build this amazing company. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. And that has been like the most life-giving experience I've literally ever had. So yeah, so that is the positive thing. Finding other um, amazing, dope black women that are just willing to roll up their sleeves and like do the work with you. That's great. I I personally think like in 500 years, they're going to look back and say, black women had superhuman capabilities that were not appreciated (laughs) at the time. 
I received that. Yeah. So the last question I'll ask is one we ask everybody, the the retrospective. So if you could go back in time to the Camille of, say, when you're still at the bank. And so this Camille, today's 2020 Camille, could go back to that Camille and say, you're going to want to do all these things. What advice would you give her? Just tell her to hold on. I think just hold on and, and, and keep and keep doing it. It was, you know, like it was hard. Like, right, you're in a predominantly white financial institution with a lot of white folks who report to you. Like, that was probably one of my most, like, challenging times. And I think I always, like, doubted myself. So I think I would just be like, hold on, step fast. Like, you're about to build something really cool. And But all of these lessons and how I matured during that time period, I wouldn't change it for literally anything. Even the people I met, too. So, yeah. I would tell her to hold on. <laughs> it's going to be all right. It'll be all right. <laughs> hold on. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Long, it's a long race. Yeah. That's great. Uh, well, this has been so much fun, Camille. Why don't you tell the audience, is there ways that they could find out more about Charger Help or get in touch with you? Do you have social media sure. handles you um, want to share? I'm on the Twitter now. I wasn't on Twitter before, but you can find me, Camille C, and also at Charger Help on Twitter and um, LinkedIn. I Really enjoy using that platform. So just you can find Camille Terry at LinkedIn and you can find all Charger Hope News on LinkedIn as well. Great. Well, I could talk to you for another hour, but we're coming to the end of our time. So thank you so much, Camille, for making the time. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. We'd like to thank our guest, Camille Terry, and our sponsor, Black VC. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or simply go to foundersunfound.com forward slash Listen to, that's listen, T-O, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Quijana, editing and production by Internet Radio Corporation, social media and other promotion by Umama Marzouk. Our music was composed by Daniel Bordowski, Bobby Cole, Neil Cross, James Grant, Alex Kaskin, and Will Van de Kromert. I am Dan Quijana, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.